chapter 2. We are excited about what God is doing in our church, and we read what he has done and continues to do through his church. And this is the ushering in of the church era we see here. Acts chapter 2, I'm going to read, beginning in verse 1. And it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, meaning the disciples, were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who, speak, who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. We'll talk about the drunk part next week. But today, we're going to look at that first section, that first part. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever in your life, have you ever experienced this? Have you ever had something promised to you only to have the promise go unfulfilled. Or worse yet, to have the promise broken. Not accidentally broken, but broken. A broken promise is more than frustrating. It, it, it can be at times heartbreaking. There is a Gaelic proverb that states this. There is no greater fraud than a promise not kept. Shirley MacLaine, who is uh, probably, this may be the first and last time I quote Shirley MacLaine, but Shirley MacLaine who is an actress, an award winner, been in numerous movies and television shows, is as known for her work in Hollywood on film as she is known for her self-described and self-proclaimed New Age spiritualism that she, she holds to. Despite all of that, she did make this statement regarding promises that even as born-again believers and Christians, we might could affirm and say, yeah, I think she may have got this one right. She says this, it's useless to hold a person to anything, he says, while he's in love, drunk, or running for office. <laughs> Maybe some truth there. The disappointment that is experienced when an expectation is not met or a promise is broken can be devastating. Years ago in Panama City, it wasn't that long ago actually, but in Panama City there was a, uh, a Hooters restaurant, so now I've gone from Shirley MacLaine to Hooters. Don't worry, it gets better. At this Hooters restaurant, the waitstaff had a competition to see who could sell the most beer. So this is not your typical sermon already, right? But as I was reading this story in the news, this, this, uh, the manager of the restaurant told his waitstaff that whomever sold the most beer in a significant amount of time, or whatever the week or two was, would win a new Toyota. Now you may have heard the story. This is, that, this is a true story. I know you're going, is that a preacher story or a true story? It's a true story. And all preacher stories are true too, but nevertheless. 
So she did, she needed a vehicle. She needed a new car. So she did everything she could. And lo and behold, by the end of the time period, she had sold more than anybody else on the wait staff. And I mean, just exponentially more. She just really knocked it out of the park. And she was so excited because of the need and the desire for that new vehicle. And so what they did on the day of the, of the revelation and the celebration with her, they blindfolded her. And you can kind of picture this taking place. And they had all the employees there. They had a lot of cameras there. They probably had the news there. And they escorted her out of the restaurant into the parking lot where she's expected to, expecting to see her blindfold removed and to see the new Camry or the Corolla sitting in the parking spot. But rather than seeing the new vehicle in the spot, what she sees is a small green alien. What the joke was on her was that she certainly won a new toy Yoda. It was in a Star Wars box. This was before Baby Yoda, so it wasn't even that cool. She won a Yoda from Star Wars, a toy one, and everybody thought it was hilarious. There are people laughing, and they're cheering, and oh my goodness, everybody but her. And so she called some friends named, named Morgan or Farah or somebody, and the lawsuit came, and I think she won the lawsuit. I'll have to, I really don't care enough about the story to double check. But nevertheless, the point that I'm making is that her expectations were very high for a promise that was offered to her, a Toyota. By the way, it was spelled T-O-Y-O-T-A on whatever the offering was, so I think that's why she won, because it wasn't spelled T-O-Y-Y-O-D-A. And even though she won the Toyota, she didn't think it was that funny. She was more than frustrated. And it didn't matter that it was on April 1st that this took place. So sometimes, oh, we're just kidding. Well, okay. So the Toyota story, that's bad. I mean, it real, it, it, it's, it's minor when it really comes to real life things, I guess. I mean, you get over that, I, I guess, or you, you sue, I don't know. But that's what's happened. But there are some, probably even in this room, at least not in the room, people we know, who struggle with the issue of trusting others even to this day. It's hard to trust other people when others in your story have broken promises or have said things and not followed through. Whether it's a parent saying, see you soon to their kid, only to see that that's the last day the kid ever saw the parent who walked out and abandoned the family. How can the kid grow up and trust a heavenly father that said, you can trust me, when the parent that he had or she had said, see you soon, and soon never happened? Or maybe it's the spouse who stood before a minister or even a justice of the peace and said, till death do us part, but it came to realize at some point it really wasn't a meaning of till death do us part, but what was really meant was until I get tired and want a new start. Promises, promises, and broken promises are part of our human story. They're devastating. They're sinful. Maybe this is one of the reasons that decades ago at the University of Colorado when head football coach Bill McCartney started a gathering of men that exponentially grew over the next couple of years to fill stadiums around our nation where men would come together to worship and to sing praises and to hear hard and tough and needed teachings from the Word of God Maybe that's why that ministry that, short, that ministry that was so popular for that time hit the news and was so popular among churches and among even unbelievers. Maybe it was because the ministry was titled Promise Keepers 
And to keep promises is so countercultural that people couldn't figure out how that was happening. Because what was revealed is there are so many promises that are broken and it went to the heart and the core of the wounds that many carry for their entire lives. Broken promises by broken people break people. And we suffer for that. This, I do believe, is why it's so difficult for some to truly believe God. I know it's a step of faith to trust God, but for others it's a step of faith and then an extra step of faith sometimes it seems because their trust in God has been, has been uh, a bit skewed by those who have said they represented Him and have not come through or by those who in the family unit represented the leader or the trustworthy ones but have not come through how can i trust a god who says he will be be with me till the end of the age when the loved one said the same thing and didn't even come back after dinner how do we get to that how can i trust him to be to 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 keep his word people say things like well i've been hurt before and i don't want to be hurt again So what I'm going to do is I'm going to lower my expectations so low so I just don't believe anything I hear anymore until it's proven to be true. And unfortunately, so often we fall into that mode and and I've got to be honest, it's really hard to blame someone for feeling that way when their personal stories have circumstances like that. But here's something totally countercultural and not necessarily easy. It does... It does require a lot of faith here at this point, or maybe just a little faith. Maybe a little faith is all it's need. It says this countercultural reality is this, that it has been proven throughout the ages that God, unlike man, keeps his promises. Every time, all the time, completely, 100%, fully kept. That kind of blows our mind as humans because... We probably don't know anybody else like that. And yet that's what God has done. And that's what we see happening in Acts chapter 2. It's a feast called Pentecost. It's a fulfillment of promises uh, by God to His children. Promises made centuries prior. Now here's the thing about promises from God. We can say, I believe God's going to keep His promises, but sometimes we don't have the privilege to see it kept on our timetable. Right, it's not that we want everything to happen instantly. I'm at the point now where I would like the things I want to happen to happen before I want them to happen. I've kind of backed it up even further. And yet what you have happening in this story is a fulfillment of promises given by God to His children, but there is nobody in the room that was alive when the promise was given. In fact, the promise was originally given generations prior hundreds of years prior to the ancestors of those that get to sit in the room and it's it's kind of like that it's kind of like that deal where they're they're going to sabbath school as good jewish children they're going to the synagogues they're hearing teachings from the rabbis they're hearing teachings around the dinner table from their parents and they're hearing this continual promise that god promised he will do x y and z he will do these things and the children and the teenagers are going yeah but when's he going to do it i haven't seen it yet and they're saying you just got to trust god and then mom and dad die and now the teenagers are moms and dads and they're telling their kids but god promised he's going to do x y 
Y, and Z. And the next generation's going, yeah, but we don't see it happening. How can we trust this? Well, you know, my mama said, my daddy said, you just got to trust God, and another generation dies. And so generation after generation after generation, and eventually someone's going, is he ever going to come through? He has been, <coughs> excuse me, but we're blinded at times, and they were as well. So what you have at this moment is the a fulfillment of biblical promises from the same God that they have been following, Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, one God. They have been with him. They have heard the teachings. They even heard Jesus reaffirm promises. And now they're setting upstairs in an upper room, waiting for it to come true. In chapter 1 of Acts, right before Christ ascended into heaven, which is an amazing story. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. If you go back at that in verses 4 and 5, here's what it says. And while staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them, the disciples, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, the promise is going to come true. For John baptized with water, and you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It's an amazing passage. It's an amazing promise. It's Jesus saying, God said this for years. I'm echoing it again. It's going to happen soon. And as a disciple, you're going to go, this is going to be unbelievable. Everything in that verse 4 and 5 is incredible except for one word. One word which could be the most annoying word in that passage. It's in verse 4. Wait. Wait. I want you to get down off the mountain after I leave. I want you to go back into the city. Go hang out in the upper room. I want you to pray, and I want you to wait. And in a few days, that's what he says, not many days. You know how many not many days is? Depends on how old you are and what's coming after a few days. If you're eight years old and Christmas is not many days away, it's the longest not many days you've ever experienced. As parents, we try to parent well, and our child, school's out, right? So Christmas must be the next day. No, no, school is out on Friday. Christmas isn't coming until next Thursday. Oh, and the kids are like, how many sleeps is that? Did anybody else speak in that language? All right, so parents then go, well, that's going to be, now I've got to do the math. Let's see, Friday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I've made that up. So seven, so we'll say seven sleeps. And the smart kid goes, cool, I'm going to take three naps today. That's three. <laughs> right? You know how this works. And all of a sudden, all those days that you're waiting in anticipation till Christmas because you can see the presents, you just can't open them, that's the longest week of your life. If you're eight or 80 i don't know maybe it's all of us hurry up and wait they waited and this is what happens there is a promise kept in this passage the promise was given by jesus it was given by god the father it was kept the promise was that the holy spirit would come and baptize them soon they didn't understand what it meant necessarily or fully they didn't know how it would be made manifest but when it did take place there was no question it was god's fulfilling promise and it's not just a promise not just this promise there were numerous promises throughout the old testament that would prepare them for this moment so let me take you back to one they likely heard read in their synagogues and and studied even in their schooling Back to the Old Testament prophet of Joel, 
In chapter 2, verse 28, it says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, there's a lot more in that prophecy than just what happens here. But you see the pouring out of the Spirit upon His people. This was a fulfillment of God's promise. A promise made to generations earlier coming true. Why? How do we know? What's the big deal? Here's what we know. God's promises will come true. God's promises, everyone, 100%, in, uh, here's what bothers us, God's timing. So there are moments we have to wait. And it could be you have to wait of generation or two or three. But God's promise was fulfilled. Secondly, you have a Pentecost covering that's taking place here. What does this mean? Pentecost is a word we hear in modern Christianity as a denominational tag or a descriptive term for a type of worship. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about the feast itself, the feast of Pentecost. It's a, it's a moment here, this covering that took place of the Holy Spirit here was an initiation or an ushering in of the church era. This is when the church really began. Pentecost is a Jewish festival. It happened every single year. In the Old Testament, it had the title Feast of the Harvest. Pentecost is a determination of how many days it would take or how many days after a certain feast it would happen. But it's the same feast. The Holy Spirit enters this room, this upper room. If you can imagine, the disciples, they've done the upper room thing before, right? Now they're back in an upper room. And at this upper room moment, last time they, they hung out in the upper room, it was one-on-one -on -one with the Son. Now it's going to be one-on-one -on -one with the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit enters into that upper room where they're gathered. And it was not a covert action. It was not a secret agent move. The Bible says it was like a mighty rushing wind. And when that happened, it drew the attention of everybody else. Have you ever been sitting at home on your couch just trying to watch NCIS and something goes on outside? You don't know what it is, but you heard something. So you look across the room and you say, did you hear that? And they go, yeah, I heard that. What was that? I don't know. So what do you do? You go and look out the front door. First you peek out, make sure it's safe. Then you go out. And then you look down and say, what if you're, well, maybe your neighbors are out there too. And maybe a transformer blew. Or maybe lightning struck. Or a tree fell. Or I don't know. But there's something going on. And it draws your attention because we're drawn to figure out the unknown to make it known. In this story. The Holy Spirit enters, and I don't know, mighty rushing wind. I used to live in North Texas. It probably sounded like a train. That would be the tornado warning. It could sound like a train here, but down here it's just a train. So the wind is kind of coming through, and they're like, what is that? And they all go out and they see it. And here's what's happening in the room. This is weird. Tongues of fire, as it's described, descended upon the tops of the disciples. I've never seen this happen. This is weird. I don't know how to explain what it exactly looked like. In my mind's eye, it's a bunch of people looking like candles. I don't, I mean, they've got little flames on them, right? But the promise was given that the Spirit would come, and when the Spirit came, the Spirit came in such a way that He did this, and they knew exactly who He was. And when those flames appeared above their heads... They began to speak in tongues. 
But not the speaking in tongues that is often talked about today. Not the heavenly language, quote-unquote. Not the prayer language. Not the do I have an interpreter kind of thing going on. But the biblical understanding of this speaking in tongues is these people spoke, and those from other parts of the region that grew up with a different heart language heard them speak in their language. This is an amazing linguistic miracle. This is, we got our missionary in Europe, John Robinson, who speaks more languages than anybody I know and is more fluent in them. He told me, he said, oh, I think I'm going to learn French next week. And he did. You know, it just drives you crazy. He's that kind of guy. He can learn a language. He's, he's better than Google Translate. It's like, it's amazing. But he is doing ministry with minority language speakers throughout Europe. And it's this understanding that, that if, when you hear the gospel in your heart language and you don't have to translate it in your head... Or have someone else explain what it means in your language. It goes to the core of who you are. That's why we do that mission work like that. But that's what's happening here. When these Galilean disciples of Christ who, let me, let me just go ahead and say, they're not dumb. I always hear these, well, they're a bunch of uneducated fishermen. They're not stupid. They're only uneducated. Some of them are only be considered uneducated in the sense of they only went through so many grades in school, perhaps. But as you read what they wrote and you read what they said and you read their stories, these are smart men. You know anybody, have you ever met anybody that doesn't have a PhD but is smarter than somebody with one? I don't have one, so you can talk about that. I have a different D, so the, the EDD. Well, I don't know what I got. What did I get? A doctor of education, a dead man, doctor of education ministry. That's what I got. Whatever. But my great-grandmother was probably the wisest person I ever met. And I don't think she finished high school. I'm not sure she finished junior high. I don't think they had junior high when they were all in one room. But she is wise. These men are wise. But as educated as they were in their trade and their understanding and even in their Old Testament understanding as Jesus had taught them, they were not educated linguistically, though they may have spoken more than one language. This is a shocking reality when these blue-collar, hard-working men stand up and start preaching the gospel. And you got the guy from Arabia standing there going, they're speaking in my language. He doesn't even have an accent. He sounds like he's from my hometown. And he looks to the guy from Crete, and he says, isn't that amazing? He's speaking in Arabian, and the Cretan says, Cretan, that's what they call him. He says, no, he's not. He sounds like he's from my hometown. He's speaking in my language. And the guy from Mesopotamia says, no, it's speaking in my language. And everybody, in, now they get it. They're going, oh my. They're preaching the gospel and there's some kind of weird universal translator thing going on and I'm hearing it in my language. No translation needed. No messed up words. I got it. I have it clearly. And, and let me just take you to verse 12 after this took place. Because here's what happened. Let me, let, me, let me back up. Not only was this a covering at Pentecost, this is where a perspective was clarified for the church. A perspective on things. What happened here is so amazing, and there are numerous teachings within the passage, but this one very clear teaching is the clarification of God's calling to His church then and to His church today. They were amazed. They were astonished. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? That's what they said. What does that mean? That means... Aren't they all from the Sea of Galilee region up in the rural areas? Aren't these a bunch of fishermen? Aren't these a bunch of country folks? 
Folks, we all speak a semblance of English in here. <laughs> you know what I mean. But if someone, you're talking to somebody, and they have, uh, you know, a, a long, you know, as I park the car. We're going to go park the car. I, ap- I am apologizing to everyone who may actually have that accent on Facebook or in the room. All I'm saying is when you hear that, you're going, they're not from Middleburg. That's what you're thinking. <laughs> if you know, I've got family members and friends that you can take a three-letter word and add five syllables into that. You're from the deep south. You know it's the same language, but it sounds differently based on where you grew up. There are regional accents. That's just who we are, right? When we go to Wales, I, I have this little app, and I'm reading some stuff in Welsh, and the kids were there going, oh, what is that? I said, it's Welsh. He goes, oh, that's southern Welsh. We speak northern Welsh. <laughs> sounds totally different, especially to the untrained ear. What's happening here is they're going, aren't these guys from Galilee? Yeah. Well, even if they're speaking my language, shouldn't they sound like they're from Galilee trying to speak my language? And they don't. And they are astonished. And you can jump down to verse 11. It says there were Jews and proselytes, uh, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God in verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed. I like that. And they looked at one another and they said, what does this mean? See, it's one thing to see an amazing thing and go, that's incredible, that's awesome, that's weird, that's strange, that's astonishing. But at some point you have to go, but why? What's this mean? Let me tell you what it means. It means that the salvation message that life eternal is available through Christ alone is not reserved for Jews alone. It is not reserved for the learned alone. It is not reserved for a certain um, people group with a certain skin color alone. It is not reserved for a certain group from a certain nation alone or just men or women alone. The gospel is for all. And the level ground at the cross is there before. See, the church era started correctly at this point saying, Anyone can come to faith in Christ if they would but repent of their sins and receive Him as Lord and Savior. It's the generations past that messed it up by adding classism and racism and all the other isms into the church. Paul said to the church in Galatia in 3.28 of that letter, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. The message at Pentecost is the message today and the perspective is clear. All have opportunity for salvation through Christ if we would but tell them It's the Spirit of God that draws people to Himself. I know not everybody's going to get saved. I know there's a narrow road and a wide road. But on that narrow road, there are people from all walks of life that have surrendered to Christ and His call. The Holy Spirit has always existed before the beginning of human history, before the creation of everything in the beginning of Genesis. The Holy Spirit has existed. He is not a created being. He is God. But at this moment of time, the story of the Holy Spirit, this entrance of Him into the story in such a way, was designed by God Himself from before there was time. God's not writing the story based on, oh no, sin entered the story. Now we've got to fix it. He already knew all this. This is His plan. 
And in this moment and from here on, here's something that we know. The Holy Spirit is with us. See, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and be with his people. And there are times when he would like the Holy Spirit would come and be with Saul and then he would leave. You see these instances in the Old Testament. Holy Spirit is there and then he's gone. So the Holy Spirit would be with his people in the Old Testament, but in the New Covenant, in this new state, uh, por- portion of the story here today, in the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit comes and baptizes his church, he is not just with his people, he is within his people, and he will not leave you nor forsake you. See, we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and we have brothers and sisters that understand that differently. Let me tell you what we see it as. I don't believe baptism of the Holy Spirit is some manifestation that takes place after you become a Christian when you're given a gift of tongues or another gifting later on. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a later baptism. Baptism of the Holy Spirit takes place the moment of surrender when you give your life to Christ and surrender to Him. Nathan Polk was baptized in the water this morning, but it was weeks prior he was baptized by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God entered into him and rescued him and saved him just as he did with every Christian in this room. I can't say everybody, but I'll say every Christian. And for every Christian in this room, the salvation story, though your background and your present may be different, your salvation moment, your born-again moment is identical to everyone else's because it requires a repentance of sin, a surrender to God, and a rescue by the Spirit of God living within you who changes you from the inside out. The gospel is the good news of life available through Christ. It is the good news of Christ. It is the good news that is Christ. He lived, he died, he rose again, and he offers full and abundant life to all who follow and receive him. See, God promised never to leave us or forsake us, and he's not going to break that promise. There may be moments where as a Christian you even feel a bit alone. I don't feel like God hears my prayers. Trust this. He has never left you and he has not left you. He will not leave you. His spirit has sealed you. You are secure in him. As Christians, we know that that's the answer. But we also sometimes are very afraid to tell other people. We don't live in a culture necessarily yet where we have to fear for our lives because it's illegal to tell others about Christianity, though some of our brothers and sisters do that. The fear that usually freezes Christians in America from telling others about Christ is that our fear is not a fear of God, it's a fear of God trumped by fear of people. We're afraid of losing friends or influence. We're afraid of maybe losing a job. We're afraid of being unfriended online. We're afraid of the awkward conversations. We're afraid of a bunch of things that Christ declared you should not fear. And I think sometimes, to be very honest... We don't tell others about Jesus because we're more afraid about losing a friendship than losing a friend for eternity. Someone else will tell them about Christ. Surely their pastor talked to them. Surely their parents prayed with them. Surely someone else said something. That's not up for me to do that. But if I say something, they may not want to be my friend anymore. Let me say it again. Sometimes we're more afraid of losing a friendship than losing a friend because there's going to come a day when there's a box in the front of the room and that friend is in that box and if that body of that friend is in that box and that person has never surrendered their life to christ they are lost for eternity that's not a guilt trip it's not your responsibility to get somebody saved but it is yours and my responsibility christians to make sure we do not keep it a secret see when the holy spirit came into the disciples in that upper room he made a big noise to make sure everybody knew he was there 
No longer could covert Christianity continue. We can't hide in the upper room, just us four and no more, and pray together. Because now the Holy Spirit has come and He has empowered us to be His ambassadors and to be His church. That moment, the secret gathering in the upper room became the public declaration. Every one of these guys, they're believers. Now a lot of them, they lost a lot, right? But covert Christianity is not what God has called us to, especially in our culture. Pentecost is a feast of harvest. Appropriate that this moment occurred here at this point. The message is clear. The salvation is available. The fields are ripe for harvest. Maybe the workers just need to get ready and go. For those in the room today that have never said yes to Jesus Christ, have never surrendered their lives to Him, you're still a pre-Christian, but we can settle that today. God is inviting you. I know He desires to know you. He has put everything in order, and He has orchestrated this day so that you would hear that message. And He wants you to hear it and respond. If you would like to know Christ today, if you would like to surrender your life, you can't just add Jesus to what you already got going on. You're not just joining a club. If you're ready to live for Him and die to self, then He will rescue you from the life that is temporal and give you a life that is eternal. And let me make you this promise, just in case it's unclear. If you are not a Christian, you become a Christian today, just understand your life will get harder, not easier. We're not doing a bait and switch or selling a fake Christianity. Christian life takes faith, and it's difficult. And not everybody will love you because you made that decision, especially those outside the faith. And you may lose some things, but let me tell you what you gain. You may not have a fun week, but you'll have an eternity secured. You, don't have to ha you may not have as many friends online as you used to, but you will have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And you'll have a father who will never leave you.